Here at In Search of Tarot, we're incredibly excited to announce Meet Me at the Margin, a month-long virtual conference for queer people who want to reclaim and restory their innate capacity for ambiguity, paradox, and liminality. When we hear someone described as marginal, we understand that description to be synonymous with silenced or pushed aside. But what changes when we reframe the margin as a site of power and possibility? Meet Me at the Margin will explore queerness through the lenses of tarot, astrology, narrative therapy, eco-mythology, archetype, art, and more, guided by some of today's most marginal thinkers, Charlie Claire Burgess, Amy DeGenero, Edgar Fabian Fries, Nick Kepley, Jonathan Coe, Sophie Strand, Chanti Tocaranto Perez, and more to be announced soon. Early bird registration is now open, and you can save 25% when you register by May 7th. Members of our Patreon community receive an additional 15% off, and then there are more discounts for members of the trans and drag communities, as well as a special student rate for people 18 to 22. We'll drop the link to register in the show notes, and please feel free to visit manofthecards.com slash meetmeatthemargin for more information. We hope to see you at the margin this June. so excited to be back with you. I feel like it's been a long time since we did one of these. Um, and we're back for another episode of Shuffling Through History, what we know, don't know, and think we know about the cards. Or in the case of today, what we know, don't know, and think we know about runes and oam. And also, I wanted to share before we hit record, I was looking in the uh, analytics of the podcast on Anchor and the first episode of this Shuffling Through History series, which was focused on the origins of the tarot, which we released back in late summer of 2022, is now the third most popular episode of this podcast of all time. Oh my God. Yay. Yeah, I know. I know. So it's like the work, all the work was worth it. It's pretty exciting. Yeah, that was, that was, but it was a, a labor of love. Let's say it like that. It was yes. such a fun thing to work on. And I learned a ton through that project. So, and we've been hearing from a lot of you, how much you love and enjoy these historical episodes. So we're just so glad to hear it. They take a lot of our work to put together, but we know that you're enjoying them and we enjoy the process. So it makes it all worth it. Yeah. And if you're one of those people that's been digging these shuffling episodes, we invite you to leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to us so that other folks can discover the series as well. That really is the best way to do that. It just like bumps up in the search and is really helpful. And you can also support the work we do here on the podcast by joining our Patreon community, where you can get early access to episodes, weekly long form essays, discounts on classes and workshops, and invitations to attend our monthly tarot hangs that we host um, towards the end of every month, all for as little as $2 a month. Yeah, $2 a month, my friends. And uh, and those tarot hangs have been really a joy. They're always a joy, but I feel like particularly we've just had 
a group of really amazing diviners and different conversations around like how to read the tarot and interpretations for the collective and all of that stuff. So do join us. Yeah, totally. And I'll put that link in the show notes. So Angie, um, you spearheaded the research for today's episode. Do you want to give us a little context for what we're going to be talking about in this episode? Yes, let's dive in. So I'm really excited because this is sort of one of those topics that you see floating around in witchy circles, and it's it's used pretty frequently, and most people have seen them but may not use them for divination. I'm talking today, like Nick was hinting at the top of the episode, we're talking about runes, and it's lesser-known cousin Oum today. We're going to toggle back and forth between the histories of the runes and the Oum, and then we'll talk a little bit about how to use them for divination later on in the episode. Our sources will be listed in the show notes for those who want to read a little further, and I suggest you do because this topic was quite dense. It's got a rich history and a lot of uses, and we can't possibly hope to cover everything in this single episode. And I want to mention that as neither of us grew up in Ireland or in Northern Europe, there may be some things that we condense for brevity or just plain get incorrect. So if you want to help us amend something in the episode, be sure to email us at isotpod at gmail.com. That's I-S-O-T-P-O-D at gmail.com and let us know. We'd love to hear from you. And with all that being said, let's get on with the history, shall we? Yes. So runes and OM, which is spelled O-G-H-A-M. What are these things? Um, At first glance, you might see both of them and think they look very similar. And you're not wrong. They do look quite similar in that they both have stick-like figures for all of the characters. But there are some key differences between these two. Oum, very basically, is a form of early Irish alphabet. So their home and cultural background is predominantly Irish. Runes, on the other hand, are mostly of Germanic origin but span throughout north of Europe, including Britannia, Scandinavia, and Iceland. Timelines vary a little, but most of the sources that we found agreed that for both runes and oum, they originated in their respective parts of the world sometime between the 1st and 4th centuries AD. Because both of them have a similar timeline, some sources say that runes originated before Latin, but the timelines that we found placed Latin's origin at roughly 7 BC, and that places the origin of runes happening soon after that. Both runic languages are thought to have potentially originated as an orthographic form of resistance to Latin, runes and oem being a coded language that could be used to communicate as Rome was slowly conquering Europe and Britannia. Both alphabets seem to have contained sounds that were difficult to transliterate into Latin. As time went on, of course, and as languages tend to do, both alphabets changed and expanded, and both were replaced with a Latin alphabet as Christianization spread. The symbols in both alphabets are not typically spoken, and rather than representing a single sound, are often used to represent a concept or philosophy from their respective cultures. So if we illustrate this example and say the Nordic rune U-R-U-Z, which is the symbol of the ox, the significance of the ox would add layers of determination, strength, persevering force, etc. So it's more than just a single character. All right, so here's where we're going to split them up so that we can zoom in better on each alphabet, starting with runes. Ooh, okay, so runes. As we said before, they are of Germanic origin, but spanned across Northern Europe, Scandinavia, and parts of Great Britain. There are differences in the language depending on your region, just like in English that we speak here in the U.S. It might sound different and have words that differ if you're in New York versus if you're in Georgia or if you're out in California you get the idea. 
The legend around the runes are that they're said to have come from Odin, who is the master of inspiration, and he took it upon himself to hang himself upside down from the world tree for nine days and nine nights as a sacrificial ritual to gain knowledge and wisdom. The word rune itself etymologically harkens back from the Proto-Germanic word runonon. In Gothic Germanic, it can mean secret. In Old High Germanic, it means secret discourse and other similar meanings from Old English and Old Icelandic as well. Runes is actually a broader term to encompass the different iterations of the alphabet as it grew from its earlier cousin, and I, I'm going to try really hard to pronounce this correctly. Um, I spent a good amount of time looking on Google and trying to hear it a bunch of times so I could pronounce this, but I may still get it wrong. Halristninger, which are rock carvings from Scandinavia containing cultic symbols and predating the earliest runic attestations according to a paper written by Elliot S. Evans. Whew, so I hope I got that one right. <laughs> yes, yes, well done. <laughs> um, thank you, thank you. The rune language variations that we most commonly see today in order from the oldest to the most recent are Elder Futhark, the Anglo-Saxon runes, Younger Futhark, and finally, the Medieval runes. I'm just like trying to take all that in. <laughs> I got it's caught lot. off. It's a lot. It's a lot, yeah. yeah I got caught off guard by that <laughs> complicated words. <laughs> um, all right. In this paper, Evan states that runes were actually separate from Germanic magical practices. Much like many of the neighboring cultures of the time, each place had a method of divining, many of which included the casting of lots, and it wasn't any different for the Germanic people. The early Germanic word krenker, which I could also be butchering, actually means casting of wood. Evans goes on to write on Roman accounts of Germanic divination, where the Germanic people inscribed signs on pieces of wood. But similar to the way many people work with tarot symbolism in our present day, it wasn't so much that the people viewed the symbols themselves as being inherently magical, but rather that the messages they interpreted from the symbols were magic. Evans reminds us that most Germanic people from this time were illiterate, and that at this time, the lines between what was magic and what was science were blurry, as were the lines between magic and religion. To illiterate Germanic people, runes held meanings of concepts, which could easily have been seen as being magical. Now, I know this is the part, this is the part right here where I know folks might be disappointed. <sighs> but as far as I could find, there's no significant evidence that during antiquity, Germanic people viewed their alphabet as magical. So, <sighs> yeah, there it is, there it is. <laughs> but it could be used to divine, just like we do today with things like tarot and bibliomancy and other forms of divination. Now, there is mythology that does support the mystical point of view that indeed runes do have inherent magic, but it's arguable to say whether people by and large took this mythology as gospel. Yeah, and we could say the same thing right now, like the, you know, what we take as gospel or truth could be highly subjective depending on who you are in your society, what your cultural background is, etc. In fact, when we mentioned in our last tarot hang that we would be doing an episode on runic divination, our friend and Patreon backer C, who is also known as Sea Light Salem on Instagram, said, will you please mention that runic divination wasn't even really a thing until the 80s? Mm -hmm. And friends, it is true. According to Wikipedia's page on runes, the first book on runic divination was written by Ralph Bloom in 1982 and followed up later with other books and authors. Bloom referenced heavily from the system of I Ching, which is a divination system native to China. I will say that I, 
I would venture to guess that when listeners hear that, there might be some listeners who disagree with that, mm-hmm. um, just because that's how these things tend to go. So if you do, like, you know, let us know and and write in, like we said at the top of the episode. Um, but it is kind of interesting to find this this little tidbit that you know tends to happen around um, esoteric and magical teachings. And and honestly, you know, who knows? Who's to say? Because a lot of this stuff gets passed through orally and folklorically um so you know we're basing this around like a written text as being the the start of this um but you know who knows there's many i'm sure there's many origin stories many uh teachings on how this originated so we're just presenting as full of a picture on this as we you know possibly can exactly it's worth totally um noting that just because it wasn't like written and published formally that nobody was doing it so right right Excellent point, Nick. Thank you. Moving on, though, runes are typically read from left to right or from right to left and usually carved into wood or stone. A downward stroke in the character might denote stability or grounding, while the upward strokes might mean mobility or connecting to divinity, but each alphabet might have its own variances. Now, here's the bit I know everyone will be interested to know, which is divination. There are ways to use the runes for spell work, but for the purposes of this episode, I'll keep it to divination. Similar to the tarot, you can decide to read reversals or not. It's up to you. You can shuffle your runes, and most often people keep them in a satchel of some kind, a handkerchief, and jostle them around inside of the little baggie so they get mixed up. And then you think about whatever question you're looking to get clarity on. Nick, do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? I would love to. There is a three rune reading in which you draw three runes for a past, present, and future placement, which is said to correspond with the three Norse fates or the Morai. Is that right? I think more Moirai, but also completely be ruining this. Yeah. Yeah. There's a seven worlds reading that corresponds with the Anglo-Saxon mythology in which you would draw seven runes from your satchel. Now, I want to differentiate because Anglo-Saxon tradition says there are seven worlds, and Norse tradition says there are nine worlds, which we'll get to in just a second. But nobody, get your panties in a bunch because we're saying seven worlds, okay? And then finally, <laughs> and then finally, you have the Norse world tree spread, which is, of course, nine worlds, and you draw nine runes out of your satchel to get your message. There will be a link in the show notes of today's episode for those who want to try out these rune spreads. So be sure to check that out because they give a great list of prompts for each of the placements. The last most common spread is to shuffle your runes and toss them all out onto your table. Whichever ones you're facing upright are the message that is meant to be read. And these aren't necessarily all of the spreads that you can use. You can certainly create your own spreads or use them in ways that feel good to you, but these are just some commonly used spreads. Now let's talk a little bit about Oum. Okay, so let's chat Oum. Oum, similar to runes, are an alphabet that represent concepts or use elements of Celtic cosmology and philosophy to convey their message. Oum is typically called the tree alphabet. Celtic tree magic by Daniel Forrest states, quote, although this term has its merits, it can be misleading. The Oum sigils are called feda, which means trees, and sometimes nin or forking branches. Furthermore, every single letter or sigil has a tree or plant associated with it, which that um, that was pretty, pretty cool, I thought. When I was browsing a bunch of websites, they all had kind of diagrams. Um, some of them were representative of local plant life, like oak, 
willow, hawthorn, yew, and more. The alphabet is split up into family groupings called acmes, which means tribe. So visually, when you see these acmes kind of um, uh, in a diagram, you might see the first acme and notice that there is a central spoke, most often called the drum, meaning the whale's backbone. And the strokes go straight out at a 90 degree from the drum. The fifth acme, however, the lines strike out diagonally through the drum, and all of the symbols within that acme look pretty similar. Oum are typically read bottom to top, and some of the earliest examples you see of oum are carved into the corners of large stones. So we can see more how it being called a tree alphabet is fitting, since you're literally going up the branches of the sigils to read the message. However, you can tip the stone or piece of wood on its side, and there's typically an arrow that tells you which direction the message is meant to be read, which we thought was very cool. There is an added layer here, too, that the Celts groves of trees are viewed as sacred places. So there is a great focus on working with the genus loci, or spirit of place, as being part of your OM practice. I recommend picking up a copy of Celtic Tree Magic if you're interested in learning more about the mythology and spirit of place. As OM went on through cultural shifts within the area, the language might have lost or gained different symbols, or the ideas might have taken on new layers of meaning. OM has mythological ties to the Celtic god Agnius, who is the god of eloquence, which I really love that, a god of eloquence. I know, isn't that kind of cool? I thought it was like very poetic. Yeah, I, I want to look up more about Agnius. Um, so he's said to have ties to Thoth and Hermes, Mercury, Hermes or Mercury in Roman mythology, reinforcing the archetypes of higher wisdom and intellect. I read a little bit about Agnius on Wikipedia, and it said that they were a god that was known for powers of persuasion. So they used their cunning words to get men to follow them. Hot. <laughs> sexy yeah but uh, no for real the I think that there's something really interesting about these types of um deities is that there's like the language the power of persuasion there's like an edge or a cunning that they tend to have and I think that that's really really interesting as especially as it pertains to language right like it's this kind of fluctuating moldable thing yeah and also I I realized as I was just now doing that I don't know if this was correct but I was using I think I used a he pronoun and I can't, I, but this is, this is a, is this a male quote unquote male God? Yeah, you, yeah. Okay. So I love that they are, I guess, you know, queer, like a queer God, mm -hmm. we could say. Um, but also I love that this is a male God using powers of persuasion, which later will kind of get cast onto like women and being feminine as being persuasive and using like your cunning, you know, like, yeah, so it's just cool. really blurring the the lines there. And this is a very old, 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 ancient god so this makes me even more want to like find out a lot more about this figure mm -hmm. i searched through a bunch of blogs and various youtube videos of practitioners who made their own oum divination sets and they usually would find fallen branches of the local trees dry them and then carve into them some people used uh wood burning tools to etch the symbols into them we can't stress enough how working with the local plant and land spirits, specifically tree spirits, is for working with oums. So again, we encourage you to look a little bit deeper. I'll quote again from Celtic Tree Magic, quote, we must remember that when we perform a divination, we are not alone. We are interacting with spirit in a very real way. 
With regards to the Om, we are interacting with the spirits of the trees and the presiding ancestral wisdom of the Druids and their forebearers, end quote. Spread for the Om goes as follows. A single Om stave where you draw a sigil at random from your satchel and you draw the message from it alone. Similar to a single card draw from the tarot, you might just get what you need from that single stave or you may need a little more context, in which case you might try the three OM stave reading or the world tree reading. You draw out the three OM staves and place them vertically in a line. The lower world, which relates to roots, and you get the underworld type themes of regeneration, past, death, and so forth. The middle world, which is the present, and that would be conscious patterns, um, etc. So as a sidebar, I feel like a lot of people glaze over present readings and I really like to think about them about like um what's actionable uh and whatever tools you have disposable to you in that moment so anyway continuing lastly the upper world would be what represents the place of divinity in Celtic tradition best intentions reconnecting with the potential possible futures and purpose etc other readings known as the five ohm stave or the Celtic cross Bridget's cross add staves to the previous spread, but on the left and right of the line, representing what supports us and where we might find more energy. Last one, similar to the runes, you'd have what's called an open OM reading, where you cast all of your 25 OM out on your table or reading surface, and the sigils that are turned upright are the ones that you interpret. There are even those who use runes and OM in addition to their cardamancy practices to add another layer to their meanings. So with that, we're going to wrap it up for today's episode of Shuffling Through History. This episode certainly taught us a lot, and we hope that you enjoyed it as well. Please feel free to email us at isotpod at gmail.com to let us know what you thought. And as we said, we also invite you to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and support this series on Patreon at patreon.com slash insearchoftarot. Thanks for joining us, everyone. We'll see you next time. Hi there friends, Angie here. After recording this episode, Nick and I realized that there's one final piece of this rune story that feels important for us to mention. We know that certain runic symbols have been misappropriated and continue to be used in certain hate groups across the world and in the United States. Some of these have been modified with additional strokes, turned on their sides, or reconfigured into new, larger symbols that, again, represent an ideology rooted in fascism and white supremacy. Certain runes are popularly used by these hate groups in the form of flags, stickers, tattoos, graffiti, patches for clothing, and so on, as subtle signaling to other like-minded people. I'm treading carefully with my language here as to not get this episode flagged or taken down, but we think it's very important for you to be as informed as possible as potential practitioners of this beautiful and ancestral craft. We urge you to educate yourself on what these are so that you're able to navigate these waters far from the reach of said hate groups. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next one. In Search of Tarot is independently written, recorded, edited, and transcribed by Nick Kepley and Angie Miller. You can follow Angie on Instagram at birdgirl underscore, that's B-I-R-D-G-E-R-H-L underscore, and you can follow me, Nick, on Instagram at In Search of Tarot. Have a question or a comment? Email us at isotpod at gmail.com. We also invite you to leave us a rating and review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts.